Well, good morning, church. It's uh, my privilege to open the word with you this morning. So on that note, please uh, go with me in the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, um, verses 10 through 15. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. Um, In verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And so just a rich passage we get to look at um, this morning. And to start... I kind of wanted to think about a few things this morning, um, but one of those things is just since as we approach the holidays to think about maybe a couple uh, conversation starters, if you will, which could be um, politics, religion, and money. (laughs) And just saying that, right, we feel this like visceral or nervous twitch almost, if you will, about what that just brings up in people's hearts, minds, emotions. And so as we think about that, um, it's a big deal. We just in, in, intuitively know it's a big deal. And so why is it a big deal? Why are these such important issues? Why are, there de- why are they dear to our heart? This morning we're going to be focusing on um, you know, finances, money, and how they relate to faith, what the Bible says about that and, and what all that entails. We could get into how politics is affected by that, where are our, taxpayer, where are our tax dollars spent, how much should we be um, giving to the government, how much should we be giving to others, that type of stuff. So um, but the focus for this morning is what does the scripture say about giving and what are the results of giving? Um, and so the passage we just read, I think, I think there's a sense in which many people find those, this passage very foreign. They look at something like this and it doesn't really click. It kind of is out there in some kind of philosophical, religious um, cloud and how does it affect their everyday life? And so hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, the other question I think that comes up is, why, are Christ- why is Christianity so occupied with giving? Why is Christianity so occupied with money? And we're going to answer that question too, but uh, I wanted to start by just thinking about, I think it's helpful to see why money is such a big deal in our culture in general, and then from there to go to why the, the Bible has so much to say and why there's such an emphasis on giving in the scriptures. Um, so how are we living? You know, when we look at these pictures, what do we think of? What do we see? Um, what's this all about? You know, our day-to-day grind, our sitting in traffic, our waiting in line, whatever the case might be, what are we looking to get ahead in? Um, we think of things like financial security. The culture, Americans, we just think about financial security. We think about 45-year 45 45 year careers. We think about an ongoing struggle. And what does it all mean? You know, these are, these are um, right and logical questions for what that all, all means. And so just why is it such a big deal? Just, just culturally, as Americans, why is money such a big deal? Um, I pulled a graph here, and as of the end of 2017, the gross domestic product of the United States is close to $20 trillion. Um, the biggest economy the world has ever seen. Production, information, um, the economy is booming. Um, it's just out there. Um, I noted that as far back as 1990, it was, you know, closer to, to $5 trillion. I mean, it's just, it's just expanded tremendously since then. Um, I also pulled this off of uh, the top five most influential CEOs in uh, the world today. And if you look at some of these, you just kind of see the staggering numbers behind these. Their net worth in the billions of dollars, the, the number of employees they oversee. Um, we can point out some of these specific ones. Some of them are very known to us. Some of them not as known, but the top three there. Mark Zuckerberg, worth $74.2 billion, oversees over almost 28,000 employees. Larry Page, the CEO of Alphabet, which is the owner of Google, um, net worth of $51 billion, oversees 88,000 employees. Jeff Bezos, many of us are familiar. He is a CEO of Amazon. Um, Net worth, the richest man in the world, $132.5 billion. And he oversees more than half a million employees. Um, so just a sheer volume 
you know, the opportunities out there, the questions about like what's our piece of the pie, um, just point to big questions for us. You know, what is the goal? What is the point of all this? What is, what do, how are we to respond to that? How is our culture responding to this? And how do we get what we want out of money? And these are our lifelong pursuits. It's, I think it's fair to ask just from an empirical, secular point of view, why? Um, we want to get it right so that it's not all wasted. We want to get it right so it doesn't all just fizzle down uh, the drain, if you will. Um, but that's where we stop for a moment in this passage that we just read and we say, you know, how does the Bible shed some light on some of these things? You know, in light of the culture we live in, in light of just the importance given to money, the importance that money has, how do we look at the Bible to start shedding some light on what that should look like in our lives as Christians? Why is it a big deal for Christians to think about money? Um, some of us are familiar with uh, this verse in 1 John 2:16. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there's a sense in which we walk along in life in the world and we start, things maybe just don't sit exactly right. There's this, there's this feeling that there's more. There's this feeling that, you know, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life just doesn't satisfy the way it's supposed to, maybe the way we thought it was going to. And it's that good reminder that um, money can feed all of what is not from the Father. You know, money can feed all those things. It can feed those, those, those what can become idols, those things that we strive for. Money can start feeding that, and that's part of why it's a big deal. Um, and so what we've been told about a lot of this is not necessarily what we, what, what we, what we should think. You know, um, the idea that everything financial, everything money-wise is uh, secular, and it's for use in getting ahead, advancing, and other things, it's the other things that are spiritual, is not accurate. Um, God would have us to join the two. God would have us to look at these things and combine them, to view the importance of money just in general and realize, yeah, it's a big deal. But beyond that, it's a big deal um, to God. Um, one author said that 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. And in the gospel, one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. Um, the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Um, so it's a big deal. It's a big deal. You know, why is it a big deal? Um, our hearts and our hands are connected. You know, God knows better than we do that our hearts and our hands are connected. When we see this, when we're influenced by it, when we move out to just get ahead in life, to, to, to make a way, God knows that along the way, our heart is pulled by these financial concerns, these financial draws, and so God wants us to give that to him. Um, and so this morning, I wanna look at this passage and consider these, these promised results. If you will, you know, the two chapters up to this point, and two chapters in First and Second Corinthians, uh, arguably a lot of time to spend talking about money. Um, but here we come to the end of that, and if you will, the three promised results of all that we've already learned about giving and about money. Uh, the first result we see that's promised here is uh, it, it results in an interdependent increase. Um, the second result, it results in righteous thanksgiving. And the third result is it results in... in probably most, most important, it results in his glory and gospel living. So let's look at that specifically here in this passage. Um, and here we get into that transition, right? We get to that transition about what's empirical, what's obvious about money. But then we get to the transition of, well, what did Jesus say about money? And how does this inform this passage? And Jesus in um, Luke 16 said something very radical, he said, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God knows our hearts and our hands are connected, and, but we do have the opportunity to serve and love God. And so the, the calling to us is not to serve this insatiable idea of money as a master. You know, to serve God, not to serve money. And that's where Jesus starts, and that's what segues into our passage here this morning. Um, so the first promise, um, interdependent increase. Um, and the thought here is um, the first promise result is not financial independence, right? That's what we hear, financial independence. What does that mean? What does that look like? That's for a lot of us, for a lot of people, the goal is financial independence. But Scripture, as we look through this passage, talks more about our interdependent increase, our dependence on one another and the increase that God provides out of that. When we look at this passage, we just see all this. I mean, to begin with this, this passage is written to the church. It's all in the context of plural of uh, plural ideas. It's, it's, if you will, the you all to the church here. And if we just look through here, we see things like, um, you know, he will supply and multiply your seed for the sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. Uh, um, verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Um, and the, the, the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval. Um, they will glorify God. Um, the contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you. Um, just the idea here, it's all, it starts with the plural idea of how we can be dependent on one another. Um, some of us are familiar with the background for this passage. There's an offering that the Corinthians were giving to the Jewish church. The Jewish church had, was in need. They had real needs. And this was an opportunity for them to become dependent on one another, to have this interdependent idea with their finances. Um, they, uh, in verse 14, we see you know, how they learn that the most significant friendships, if you will, the the most important things about relating to others, about being friends with others, are those friends that you would, even from a distance, even you know, partway across the world, like we uh, kind of thought about this morning, that those friends are the ones we would, we would pray for, and then we'd also give to love. Um, they learned this lesson. In the midst of their need, they learned what it was to love others, most of which they had never seen, who were willing to give um, for them and to pray for them. And... I think when we think about just that topic, I think there's a big point of thanksgiving here. We, we thank God and we say, you know, thank you, Lord, that we're not in charge of how financially independent we are. It's really easy, especially as independent Americans, to think that if we just become financially independent, if we just have the things we want financially with our goals, we can kind of, we can kind of shut down. We can kind of be on our own. We can kind of not need people, unfortunately. Um, but thanks be to God that he gives us different circumstances. He gives us different seasons of life, and he controls how independent or dependent we become on one another in whatever need that is, whether it be financial, whether it be prayer, whether it be other things. God is in control of how independent we are because we are in need of interdependent love. I think of this picture um, and this idea of being enriched to be generous in every way. Um, if you will, you know, this idea of being independent, this idea of clenching your fist and holding on to every grain of sand you can get. You know, some, some people maybe can hold on to a little more sand. Um, some people not as much. The tighter we clench, the less we will probably hold. But that, <laughs> but that fist on the left is not able to receive, nor is it able, able to give, right? It's, it's clenched. It's, it's independent. It's, it's, it's set in its way. Um, God instead talks about this enrichment to be generous in every way, that what he gives us would flow through us and be a blessing to others. Um, it talks, this passage talks about overflowing in many thanksgivings. Um, and when we think about this, you know, we think about this picture, these open hands that, were, that are ready to receive and are ready to give. Some of it flows out, much of it flows out to others. And those other hands that receive that blessing then flow out to others. And there's this ripple effect, right? There's this ripple effect in this interdependence that spreads throughout the world and beyond our comprehension. Um, and we're reminded, we, we, look at, we look at the contrast here and we look at where the sand comes from and being in a beach community, right? Um, we look at where the sand comes from. You know, it comes from the seashore. The, the sand is inexhaustible. God's riches are inexhaustible and he just wants, to be, wants us to be a part of this. 
right? He just wants us to, to have open hands so that he can do what he wants for his glory. And so thanks be to God for that. Um, I think it's a big irony, some messages out there today that are uh, a health and wealth type message. Um, because I think it broods two things, right? In, in, ironically, it broods two things. One is this idea of independence, right? We don't need each other. We just name what we want. We claim it. We speak it into existence even. Just, just these different ideas of this prosperity that comes straight from God whenever we want it. Broods independence, right? We don't need each other. We don't need to be in these loving relationships to be a blessing to one another. We can do it on our own. And if you need help, there's actually this condemnation, right? You don't have the faith that maybe others have. Um, it's, it's a dangerous message, and it's just it's ironic that it broods the opposite of what this passage is um, talk, talking about. And so as Jesus is reminded us that we started with, you know, are we making friends for heaven and eternity? Are we part of this partnership that we saw um, in Papua New Guinea, in Pakistan, in places in the world where we can be a part of making friends for eternity? We will not know the weight of that until one day um, we go to be with him and be with others. Um, where our treasure is, our heart is also. It's not only that our, that our hearts and hands are connected, but it's where our treasure is, our heart is also. And so the question for us is in light of all this, in light of this passage, kind of the context of this passage, putting it in terms of to have this interdependent increase with one another, to enjoy blessings with each other from one another, and to see what God does and what he multiplies amongst many people, are we tempted instead to use people and love money? And so the calling for us is to love people and use money, right? There's a big difference. Don't use people and love money. Love people, use money. So second, second result that we see in this passage, righteous thanksgiving. Righteous thanksgiving. Um, it results in righteousness and it results in thanksgiving. Um, and we might ask that question, you know, isn't it good for me to be rewarded for my accomplishments? You know, isn't that kind of a logical uh, outflow? Isn't that something we should look for? Um, but what the scripture makes clear is that um, that's not where the story ends. That's not where the story ends. If you look at verse 10, it's this idea of he who supplies seed to the sower will supply and multiply. It's he, right? It starts with him. It comes from him. It's he who will. He who will. And uh, specifically for Americans sometimes, I think we, we have this idea that our, our, our talents and opportunities are from our own, are from what we do, right? Or that's, you know, we work hard, we get educated, we use that education to accomplish X, Y, and Z. The opportunities are just, we are born here. And that's why we have those opportunities. But specifically to Americans, it's that idea that um, if we take a country like Pakistan and think about ourselves being born there, right? Even with the same talents, even, even if our talents were truly our own, even if our talents weren't God-given, would we have those same opportunities in some of these other countries? And to, to be humbled by that, to think about um, it comes from God. It's he who supplies will also multiply because it comes from God. And as we approach Thanksgiving, I think it's important to think about that. That's the why of the Thanksgiving holiday, right? This idea that we can kind of just uh, subjectively thank something, you know, that we can be thankful for something is, is hogwash, right? We're thankful because God pours blessing into our lives. Verse 9, he distributed freely his righteousness endures forever, and we get to distribute like him. We get to depend on him in righteousness. That's what righteousness is, right? Part of righteousness is having an understanding of what uh, thanksgiving should look like. Um, it's interesting that in verse 10, too, there's this idea of you know, as we know from just thinking about farming, the seed and what the harvest is is of the same kind, right? You plant, you plant uh, corn kernels, you get corn, right? And so there's this idea of what we're sowing might be money, and there is a sense in which, yes, God pours out more sand. He pours out more money. Um, and there's an idea that that is the same kind. The sowing and the harvest are of the same kind. But there's also this idea in verse 10 of the, it's a harvest of righteousness, the, the sowing and increase, the harvest of your righteousness. There's this idea, again, that it's tied together, right? It's tied together. 
this idea of how we use money doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't end with a, a secular view of what our goals are, what we've accomplished, but there's an idea of God using our hearts and our money to be righteous before him, to be thankful before him. Um, verse 12, um, verse 11 and 12 really remind us that uh, thankfulness is the most often commanded thing in the New Testament. Um, thankfulness is a big deal to God. And in verse 12, we see another result here that's a pretty uh, phenomenal result. It says that it's not only supplying the needs of the saints, so it's not only supplying the practical needs of the saints, the, the need that they have, which was a real need, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You know, this is the picture, this is the hope, that not only will this supply, not only will this do good for people, but it will also um, overflow in thanksgiving. There's this amplification, this ripple effect. Thanksgiving will increase. Thanksgiving to our Creator will increase. First Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's the will of God. You know, the will of God is to give thanks in all circumstances. And this whole passage is part of that. Um, Hosea 10, 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. There's this idea that the, it's the fallow and virgin ground that is the most fruitful. It is, it is that heart that's, that's open. It is those hands that are open that God is able to, to most be glorified in the way that he increases righteousness. Um, and we're called to plant. We're called to plant and see the result. Okay, so with respect to righteous thanksgiving, how do we search our hearts? You know, how do we know where our hearts are with respect to all this? Um, and we start by opening our hand, right? It's as simple as that. We open our hand. We are, are ready. We are, we are willing to see what the Lord would do through open hands. Um, and, and then the second question, too, is, um, you know, do we believe that we never retire from God's calling on our lives? And do we believe that the money never becomes our own? Um, we touched on it today. Retirement doesn't mean God's calling ends. We don't no longer have to walk with God, but it's a... But is our life always, a, always called by God to do his will? And does the money ever become ours? Is it ever really truly ours? Or is it always the Lord's to use for his glory? Um, the other, another question I think about is, uh, I've thought about here is, um, are, we, are we hoarding or spending for security? Because either can be security, right? To, to hoard our money, to, to accumulate certain things that make us feel more secure, make us feel... Um, just uh, richer in security can be just as bad as spending, spending it all away to try to get happiness from the spending we do. But instead, are we sowing spiritually, sincerely, and strategically, right? Are we sowing spiritually, sincerely, and strategically? Um, that idea, right, is what we sow from a spiritual perspective. Do we take, do we let the, the word of God influence how we give? Does we let the word of God influence how, how we, we live and give? And it is sincere. You know, we're really good sometimes at, uh, at, at kind of justifying things, right? Well, we needed this, we needed that. Um, and that might be good, right? But is our value system with money, is our longing and how we use money to bless other people, is it sincere and is it strategic? Right? The Bible doesn't say that everyone should live with nothing. The Bible doesn't tell everyone, tell some people, it doesn't tell everyone to give everything you have and uh, live with nothing. But it does ask us to live strategically. Right? It asks us, how is what we have for the benefit of hospitality? How is what we have for the benefit of outreach? How is what we have for the benefit of our neighbors, for the benefit of the nations? And so what is our strategy to use what he's given us? The third result, and they go together, it's the, the promised result here is that it will result in living for his glory and it will result in gospel living. Um, and here's another question that sometimes comes up, right? Um, is there something in it for me? Like, what's in it for me, right? 45-year career, waiting in traffic, slaving away at the desk, whatever, that, whatever the case might be, what's in it for me? But what the Bible says, what's in it for us, is we get to be a part of his glory proclaimed. Um, his glory is a result. 
His glory is a result. Verse 10, he will supply and multiply. It's for his glory that he supplies and multiplies. And verse 13 here gives us a real kind of clear picture. It says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. They will glorify God. You know, when they see this, when we see each other living like God called us to, we will glorify God. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. Some of that comes in practical, providing for practical needs. That brings glory to God, and we get to be a part of that. C.S. Lewis said, um, aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in, but aim at earth, and you will get neither. That's the idea. We live for his glory, and we get some of earth thrown in, right? We get to enjoy a lot of God's blessings, the weather, the, the you know, just the opportunity to be here, food, all that kind of stuff. We get it thrown in. But when we aim at earth, when we clench our fists, when we hold on to what we have, we lose both. We become a slave to money. We serve money, and we lose both. We lose God's glory, and we lose what's here on earth. And that's the beauty of this inter- interdependent churches, right? The be- one of the beauty of the interdependent churches is it's not about Joe or Jane or Bob doing this or that. It's about the church providing for each other and providing for other churches, providing for other Christians. God gets the glory, right? It's, if you will, like several headwaters forming to join a huge river. And we don't have it on our screen here. Some of you can see it here, but there's a, there's a picture of a... <laughs> or a um, a picture, a picture on the left here of a head, one of the headwaters, the first headwaters of the Colorado River, right? So like a little pond up in the, uh, the, the Rocky Mountains. And you trickle down far enough and you have this massive river, one of the biggest in the world, the Colorado River that forms because of it. Interdependent churches, people pouring into each other's lives, the ripple effect, the amplification of all this uh, results in something amazing, It results in something amazing that glorifies God that we could never do by ourselves. We could never do in independence. We need to live in interdependence to magnify the glory of God. Um, And Jesus Christ is about his glory. Jesus Christ is about his glory. He's the great conductor who leads and guides these things so that they form into something that's beautiful, something that can be um, seen, something that can be heard, something that can be uh, rejoiced in for his glory. Um, interesting quote from Napoleon about the glory of Jesus Christ. He asked uh, uh, someone, can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? And that person declined to respond. So this is what Napoleon said, Napoleon Bonaparte. He said, well then, I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, of my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lightened up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand, which is beyond all others, difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his Uh, friends, or a father of his children, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demanded unconditionally and forthwith. His demand is granted wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation of the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most. I have often thought of it. 
This is it which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so God uses unrighteous mammon, is the verse we looked at, talked about. He uses that to glorify himself. He uses that to proclaim his glory throughout the ages in different people's lives. And so the last result of all this, you know, the last result of all this is that we get to live for gospel living. You know, gospel living gets to become real in our hearts and our lives. And so we ask that question, how can, how can Paul speak so radically different about money? How can he speak so radically different in this passage about what he call us to do? And it's because Christ's work is so radically different. Christ's work is so radically different. The gospel, the cross, the resurrection, salvation, this is what everything rests on. It's what everything rests on. Um, that's why we can live so radically different. Um, you know, every other religion in the world says give, 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 right? And here, I guess here's the point, right? Here's one of the main points is regardless of what all our thoughts are about finances, about money, we come to that, re- that realization that every other religion in the world says give, give, give. You know, give, 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 and maybe heaven. Give, 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 and maybe nirvana. Give, 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 and maybe mercy. God alone uh, says that the Lord gave everything. He already gave everything. Now live and give. Um, verse 13, they will, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ that proclaims God's glory. And then in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You know, that's, that's the, the closing of all this, is all this makes sense because of God's inexpressible gift. All this makes sense because of what God has done on the cross for us. Um, John MacArthur talked about, in terms of sowing, that God himself buried his son and reaped the harvest of resurrection and salvation. There's this idea that that is the model for us to follow. Um, next. <clears throat> well, uh, so to close today, um, it's, it's kind of easy, it, what, what's kind of nice is the verses, some verses that are easy to remember are John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. Most of us, many of us are familiar with John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 says this. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for, our, for the brothers. That's why it makes sense. That's why it makes sense to give like nobody else, because Christ laid down his life for us, and we can do that for others in different ways. Not only financially, we can apply this across a lot of different spiritual disciplines a lot, across a lot of different uh, spiritual sacrifices. But financially, we can do that too. And I wanted to close today with just a quick reference to an account that many of us might be familiar with. It's the account of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all joined together at uh, a dinner table. And, and the, at the close of that dinner, Jesus says this. He says, after she had... So the scene is, Lazarus has literally been raised from the dead. Um, they're all together as family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, their siblings. They're all in that with Jesus. You know, they're with Jesus, dying with Jesus, with their brother who's just been raised from the dead. Um, Mary opens up a, uh, a flask of, of pure nard, an alabaster flask of pure nard, worth about a, a year's wages. At that time, worth about a year's wages. And we're not sure if that was her life savings. We're not sure exactly where that what she was saving that for. But on this occasion, she decided to pour it on Jesus and anoint him. And this is what Jesus says about that that act. When she starts to be accused by others, Jesus says in uh, Mark 14, leave her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It was a big deal. It was a big deal what she had done. And I don't even think she understood the full weight of what she was doing in that moment. But even like today, Jesus said, what, what is done for gospel purposes will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Um, you know, if you, if you love money, if you serve money, it remains unforgiving. It will never forgive you. It will never satisfy you. It will never forgive you. When you fail it, when you don't have what you want, when you don't, haven't saved up what you wanted to, it, money will not forgive you. It's only the infinitely sacrificial love of Christ 
that can meet you where you're at. It's only that love that can turn your ideas about God, your ideas about the world, your ideas about the economy, whatever it is, turn it on its head because of what Christ has done. Um, some, you know, will have this clenched fist, even unto death. You know, they will have spent a lifetime having served this insatiable master of money all their lives. Um, and apart from Christ, who knows? You know, is that the way we're to live? But in Christ, we know that that's not the end. It's because of the gospel. It's because of what Christ has done. It's because of verse 15, the thanks that we give to God for his inexpressible gift, that we can live and give like Mary, that that makes sense, that that makes sense to live like that. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we uh, just give you thanks for your reminder in this passage of your glories. And Lord, we're reminded, we're a little humbled by how much you talk about money, and we don't understand it completely, Lord, but you understand it more than us, that uh, our hearts and our hands are connected, that um, you were glorified, and we experience your love to a fuller extent when we are willing to give like you call us to. And Lord, although we don't know exactly what that might look like today and tomorrow, I pray that you would continue to give us strategic vision for how to glorify you and to love you with uh, the finances that you entrust us. And we ask it and uh, praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.